and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our Institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Satava. Dr. Satava is Professor Emeritus of Surgery in the Department of Surgery at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle. Prior positions he's held include Professor of Surgery at Yale University, Military Appointments as Professor of Surgery, Walter Reed Army Medical Center, Program Manager at DARPA, and Senior Science Advisor at U.S. Army Medical Research and Material Command at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Today we are going to be talking about the impact of advanced technology on the future of healthcare. Welcome Dr. Satava, thank you for being here. In your presentation earlier today you talked about disruptive thinking. Could you explain to our listeners what this is and why it is important for the future of healthcare? Well, disruptive uh, visions and, and disruptive technologies, terminology comes from Clayton Christensen's book, uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, the purpose behind a disruptive vision is not to make something better, but to radically change the way that we do things and have not an incremental improvement, but a vast improvement above and beyond what we have today. Whether you measure that improvement in terms of the types of technology that it, we are using or the efficiency with which we're doing things uh, more cost-effectively uh, with smaller pieces of equipment and so forth. The fundamental principle behind disruptive visions is to look at a specific problem from a completely different perspective. Henry Ford said it better than anyone else. Uh, His quote is uh, well known. When I asked the people what they wanted, they said, a faster horse. What they actually meant was they needed to get from one place to another quicker. And that was the reason that Henry Ford invented the automobile rather than working with the veterinarians to make a horse run faster. So that's a disruptive technology in the sense it completely revolutionized not only the the purpose for the new invention, but the entire infrastructure that's associated with it. Can you talk about patient expectations and the challenges for healthcare providers in meeting these expectations? As new technologies come forward, or new procedures or processes, um, they go through what uh, Gartner has described as a hype cycle. Uh, Initially, a new invention comes in and people get all excited about them, uh, the age of the the discovery area of it, but then the media, or in the explanation, it gets hyped beyond what the original science was really going to promise. And then what ends up happening is you run into a period of disillusionment when the expectations can't be met. They, quite frankly, were never to be to the area that it was hyped up to be. And then there is a a reversal, if you will, an overcompensation, and nobody's interested in the technology because it didn't do the most wonderful thing in the world. And then there's this very gradual slope of building back confidence of perfecting the technology so it can get closer to what the expectations are, and eventually you end up with a commercial product. So the idea behind uh, the Gartner's hype cycle and expectations uh, is to make sure that when you have a new idea or invention, 
that you clearly define what it can and cannot do and avoid as much as you can the uh, rhetoric that goes behind new technologies as they move forward. Can you discuss some of the advances in imaging and the real-world applications? Well, imaging is a very important part, in my mind, of the next generation of healthcare. Uh, it's going to be a critical component, and although we are aware of how much that CT, MRI, and other ultrasound and other imaging technologies have added to our current uh, inventories of technologies that have greatly improved our diagnostic and to a certain extent our therapeutic capabilities, um, I think this is going to be overshadowed by the next generation of systems. Virtually all of our uh, imaging capability is based upon looking at various parts of the what we call the energy spectrum or the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, the entire world is surrounded by many different kinds of energy, um, x-rays and, and gamma rays on one side that we use for imaging with uh, x-ray machines and uh, uh, cancers for gamma ray, all the way down to radio waves uh, which are very, very long instead of very short waves that allow us to do, like radar, we could look at uh, various uh, technologies or they've also discovered a way to use radio waves, radio frequency, uh, vibrated rapidly enough that they coagulate tissues and kill cancers and so forth. So there, there are all forms of energies out there. And my view is that a combination of the imaging technologies to allow us to see, to make the diagnosis, and then using either that same energy at, at a higher power or higher frequency, uh, or a different one combined with the imaging one that would allow us to do therapy. The advantage to this uh, we are seeing in many areas. Um, the area of photonics, which is lasers. We have lasers that you can shine a light on a, a tissue and you can tell if it's good or bad, like a cancer. And then you can use that same laser and press another button with high frequency and actually coagulate and kill the tissue. So we can do that with many different types, with ultrasound and we've got standard ultrasound and Doppler ultrasound for making diagnosis, but then we have high-intensity focused ultrasound that can conceal the same tissue. The long-term advantage is that is you can end up with a single instrument that does both diagnosis and treatment at the same time, in real time as we say, uh, and be able to provide the cure for the individual with, with one visit to the physician as opposed to coming back and forth and back and forth our individual instruments, including our imaging technologies, become intelligent. It's the information from one form of the energy that turns on the system and then allows that therapy to occur and then it looks again with the diagnostic component and it does it extraordinarily rapidly with a 50 millisecond cycle. So you can do this over and over again in very, very short periods of time. In essence, 200 operations in, in one second is what the capability of these systems are, and then you could use it for large areas. Thank you. In your presentation, you talked about how robots can go beyond human limitations. Can you give examples and the advantages of robots aiding in surgery and in the operating room? For time immemorial, uh, humans have been using tools to do things that their human body cannot do from as early primitive times sharp stones in the Stone Age and then fire 
and uh, Bronze Age metal instruments and scalpels and so forth and on and on. So enhancing human performance beyond what we were uh, naturally endowed with has been a very important activity in all humans' lives. One could look at robots as nothing more than a more sophisticated method of a device that would allow you to do things that you couldn't possibly do otherwise. For example, the currently available surgical robots allow a surgeon to sit down and be able to uh, precision point an individual instrument, like a scalpel, with 10 micron accuracy. That's 10 times better than the unaided human hand could possibly ever do. Uh, that also has what's called a tremor reduction and tremor filtering, which means that as you try to get very, very precise, there is a very, very slight but obvious um, movement, tremor, trembling of your hands so that you cannot hit precisely the target that you would want. This is able to be filtered out by robotic systems. And quite frankly, at this point in time, any surgeon can sit down at a robotic surgical system and have 10 micron accuracy, well beyond anything that a normal individual would be able to do. There are other opportunities uh, because the, the robot actually is mainly an information system uh, in addition to a mechanical device. Um, and it can allow us, for example, to do remote surgery. I could sit down at a console, a surgical console, in one place and actually operate on a patient in another area. Uh, Dr. Marin Anvari from London, Ontario, Canada has operated on 35 people who were 200 miles away. He would do the surgery and there would be an assistant there to assist him with the surgery at that time. But he was doing the procedures. Uh, well, theoretically, uh, there's no way for a human to operate 200 miles away, but we now could provide that opportunity. That's simply an example of using a robotic system to do things that otherwise would be completely impossible. The LSTAT, Life Support for Trauma and Transport, has been used in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Can you talk about this intensive care unit and its benefit to our military? The advantage to the, um, the LSTAT, or the Life Support for Trauma and Transport system, is it's in essence an entire intensive care unit that has been miniaturized and put in a tiny platform underneath a stretcher uh, that will be able to act right there on the battlefield as if it were a real intensive care unit. It has uh, the ventilators, it has IV fluids, it has sensors to record blood pressure and so forth. So in essence the purpose of this is to be able to provide an opportunity for a medic or an EMT person to put a patient, an injured patient, into the intensive care unit at the point of injury and allow through telemedicine for the surgeon back at the hospital or back at the mass unit to begin taking care of that patient as they're coming back. This is particularly important in evacuations for things such as helicopters where it's extremely difficult to perform any kind of activity. It, the noise is so large it's very difficult to hear what's going on but this system provides visualization of exactly what's going on and allows the medic along with the surgeon who is in the central position, whether it be the MASH hospital or the civilian hospital, to guide them through various maneuvers to keep this person alive until they arrive back at the hospital. Can you give us your thoughts on why advanced technology is being used right now in other industries like food inspection and airport security, 
but is not being applied as easily in healthcare. Many of the technologies that are being used in other industries um, have not migrated to healthcare mainly because we're completely unaware of them. Uh, the practice of healthcare is not the relaxed atmosphere that it had been in the past. It's become very, very intense and much more stressful. Uh, and because of economic issues, there's been a push for the physicians to see more and more patients uh, so that they can get them through in order to make it, the health provision of health care economically feasible. We don't have enough doctors as it is, and uh, there's more pressure to see more and more patients to do that. Because of that, I think that uh, what we're seeing is a uh, completely different uh, approach to medicine. However, when one looks at similar activities in industry, they've been using advanced technologies uh, based upon science that they've developed independent of healthcare. And these technologies don't seem to be relevant to come to the attention of physicians. Uh, for example, the areas of uh, diagnosis. It took decades from, from laser diagnosis with various forms of spectroscopy that would identify accurately various bacteria or, or pathogens uh, for contamination in food, it took decades for that same information to leave the food industry and come into the healthcare industry. Um, there are many silos in many different disciplines. By that I mean in healthcare we've got surgeons and they do their thing and internal medicine do their thing and radiologists do their thing and the press of getting patient care done has prevented to a great amount the ability to share information and new discoveries from one specialty to the other. And that's within healthcare alone. Doctors go to medical meetings to learn new things, but they don't go to, say, physics meeting to learn about the new light therapy or the new energy-based therapy, or they don't go to the microbiology one because they're busy doing surgery. And so it's very difficult because of the individual specialties are so special that you don't have time to learn about the newest advances that are coming forward. So the, the factor of doing interdisciplinary training, interdisciplinary teaching, interdisciplinary research is critical to be able to spread new ideas quickly from one area of specialization, whether it be in another kind of science or another part of medicine, back to uh, a specific area of medicine. In your presentation, you touched on cloning, genetically designed children, and extending longevity. Can you describe to our listeners what the implications are of removing bad genes from children and the ethical considerations for doing so? The advanced technologies that are emerging at this point in time are presenting much, much more profound moral and ethical issues than we've ever had before. In the past, we had issues such as end of life, uh, should we disconnect someone who is brain dead from a respirator and so forth. The new technologies now go way beyond that. Some of them, for example, human cloning. Should we be cloning more people? Uh, we do not know how successful it will be in the long run. And quite frankly, uh, we have an overpopulated planet. Do we really want to go and begin cloning more people when we can't take care of the ones we already have. So these are some of the issues in human cloning. Uh, 
Other areas, uh, for example, on longevity. Uh, there are a number of different strains of mice out there that live their equivalent of two to three lifespans, if you will. We can use apoptosis, antitolemerase, uh, specific nutritional uh, manipulations, like by sorbitol and so forth. And these mice will live, as I mentioned, two to three times their normal lifespan very healthily. If we began doing that to people, they would live the equivalent of two or three hundred years. Do we want to do that? Uh, what will a person do for, say, two hundred years? Would they retire at 55 or 60 years of age and spend 150 years doing whatever, uh, second careers? Or can we begin to even feed our planet if people are beginning to live that long? We have severe problems as it is today with people that don't live long lifespans. We can't feed our planet as it is. People are starving every day. Should we be going forward and developing longevity when we can't feed the people that we have today? Another interesting aspect of um, success, but the question being, do we need to do this? The, the moral implications are, if we have a child that has a known genetic disease, for example, uh, phenylketonuria, von Wildebrands, or so forth, or some that is even more uh, defective. It is known that we can uh, take stem cells and be able to reprogram them. What is happening today is we have a number of uh, genetic diseases that are so well known that if a person is born with a genetically known disease, that family is going to be asked to have another child that is genetically engineered to not have that disease and then be able to use that and harvest the cells from that individual, give them back to the d disabled individual, and allow them to have a normal life. Very, very profound, and it's uh, just a very number of specific diseases that were successful so far. However, this raises the question, what happens if the family doesn't want to have another child? They have the opportunity to make their disabled child live a normal, long life and healthy without any major health care costs. But without it, they will have a shortened life, a disabled life that's not very fulfilling, and be an enormous burden upon society. If the family doesn't want another child, does the government intervene on behalf of the child? Does the government intervene because it can't afford hundreds of thousands of dollars every year when you can cure them with thirty or forty thousand dollars. And who's going to make that decision? Are we going to leave that up to lawyers and politicians or are our scientists and physicians going to be engaged in this discussion? The technologies that are emerging today, and these are just a couple of examples of them, are profound to that level. They're impacting not only just a single person but a whole class of people or a population as a whole. Thank you interesting issues to think about. Kind of following on that question, you said technology is neutral. It's how we use it. Can you elaborate on this idea for our listeners? It doesn't matter what area you're looking at. When you begin talking about technology, it can be in automobile industry, it can be in manufacturing or textiles, or it can be in healthcare. As a new technology is developed, there's nothing inherently good or bad about it. It's just a technology, it's an opportunity. It's kind of like a knife. You can use it in order to 
cut your food and feed yourself, but you can also use it to kill someone. The knife didn't do anything. It's the implementation that has it. And so as we look at these new technologies that are emerging, we need to keep in mind that it's the use of the technology that needs careful scrutiny and whether or not it's being used appropriately and for the benefit of our patients. We have finally come to the position in, in, in medicine that the common denominator for what a physician should do is patient safety. Ensure that whatever we deliver, whatever we develop, whatever we design, it has as its focus patient safety in order to provide healthcare cures or at least alleviation of pain and suffering. What are your predictions on how healthcare will advance over the next 10 years? Are there specific areas that we should be focusing on? Well, healthcare will continue to advance in many different areas, and I, I'm not going to look into the political aspects of it, the financial aspects, uh, or some of the policy issues, but I would think that there are a number of areas in the technology-based advancements that are going to be very important, and they seem to be reasonably clear at this time. We have moved, for example, in procedures like surgery or um, interventional radiology, and we've gone from large, wide-open operative sites, surgical sites, to minimally invasive tiny incisions or inserting into blood vessels and so forth. And the next generation is going to be the area of non-invasive surgery. A combination of the image-guided technologies that we have developed, CT, MRI, ultrasound, and so forth, gives us a window inside of the human body that allows us to see things our naked eyes cannot see, and therefore to do procedures internally without needing to have large incisions to do them, and hence the success of minimally invasive laparoscopic and robotic surgery. Reduction in pain with the same, but we still have incisions and, and so forth. I would look at what has been happening, not only in the area of imaging, but also the area of controlling energy, what we call directed energy. And areas that had energy only for for diagnosis now are being discovered how we can use that same energy for therapy and directing the energy into the body without making incisions. Uh, some of the more recent technologies, for example, are ultrasound. We used to use it for diagnosis with Doppler and so forth. Now we have high-intensity focused ultrasound that can shine the ultrasound into the body, see what the abnormality, then power up it to a larger different setting and then actually destroy the tissue inside without needing to go ahead and make any incisions. We can do that with light, with specific wavelengths of lasers to make a diagnosis and then find the right wavelength of length that goes through the body into the tissue that we have to uh, treat and be able to provide treatment for it. And as we look at the electromagnetic spectrum, the energy spectrum, as I mentioned earlier, there are many, many, many areas of energy that we're not even looking at that could be very, very profitable in terms of combating diseases. And the reason is that energy works at the molecular level. We can turn on and turn off specific molecules. Most diseases are caused by a molecule going bad. Cancer is an example. 
various uh, autoimmune diseases and inflammatory diseases. So many of the diseases that we treat today with medications or with operations, in the future we may be able to actually tune the energy that we have available today and turn on and turn off specific molecules and disease cells and return them back to normal. For our listeners, what is the main message you would like them to take away from this podcast? I think the main message that we have is that we are uh, uh, still on an upward curve, if you will, of advanced technologies that are giving us capabilities that in the past had been simple fantasies. Uh, technologies that you've seen in the movies or read about in books now are hard science. And to that end, we need to have an open mind but a very rigorous evaluation process to the new technologies that are moving forward. Don't overhype a new technology to a point that patients aren't going to be interested because of disappointment. Uh, on the other hand, uh, make sure that when you do have a new technology that you do exploit it, you don't suppress it. There are many technologies that we're aware of that have taken 10 or 15 years to come forward, only partially because of the evaluation process, but also partially because there's been great resistance against adopting something new, simply because you have to be retrained as a physician or it's something that you're not familiar with. Uh, education and training is a very important part of new technologies. So I think the future is extraordinarily promising. The technologies that are emerging are truly mind-boggling beyond what anyone would have ever expected. And uh, they're not science fiction anymore, but they're science fact. Dr. Satava, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.